This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, forward, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm Declan Garvey, Executive Editor of the Dispatch. And today I am talking to Jonathan Carl, Chief Washington Correspondent for ABC News and the author of a new book called Tired of Winning. Donald Trump and the End of the Grand Old Party. That's out today in bookstores everywhere. I should disclose, uh, I am not a disinterested third party in this conversation. I've been working with John on Tired of Winning since October 2022. But as a result, uh, I'd like to think I have some pretty unique insight into his reporting process. And I hope this conversation helps bring listeners behind the scenes, as well as shed light on some of the true motivations driving Donald Trump's third presidential run. Jonathan Carl, welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, great to be here. Uh, So you've got this new book out. Uh, that you can see here Tuesday, November 14th, called Tired of Winning. Um, and uh, before we get too deep into the conversation, I should disclose that I am not uh, uh. impartial uh, moderator here. I've been been working with you on this project for what? It's more than a year at this point, right? Uh, yeah, you, uh, you, you came in at the inception and uh, had a major impact on this book. So, so thank you for that. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure. Um, but it's your it's your third book about Donald Trump following front row at the Trump show in 2020, betrayal in 2021. This title, Tired of Winning, has a little bit of finality to it in in some ways. Do you think is is this your last Trump book or or do you see this? What's the what's the word for a series with four tetralogy? Yeah, I should disclose that when I wrote Betrayal, the subtitle uh, was the final act of the Trump show. <laughs> now I've tried to explain, I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not a political guy. So I spin is something I usually like to pierce, not to do myself. But uh, I tried a little bit to say, you know, final act, final act, you know, after the final act, you often have an encore or, a, you know, a, you know, some kind of a, some kind of an additional thing that happens afterwards. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, one of the big problems will be uh, coming up with how to describe it because trilogy does have a nice ring. I, I don't know if treason trilogy is the uh, is is the right way to describe this, but but maybe. We we were talking the other day. Uh, Toy Story. There's they had one, two, and three wrapped yeah. it up nicely in a bow, and then ten years later. They went with the fourth one to uh, to bring a new generation in. So, you know, that could be the the path down the road. And we uh, won't be doing any prequels. So we're not going to be doing the <laughs> Star Wars thing. Good, good. 
So because this is uh, is less a, a typical interview, I kind of want to bring listeners a little bit into the the book writing process. Uh, so Tired of Winning was was not uh, the original title uh, that that you came up with when when you first went to the publisher with the the proposal. So can you can you talk a little bit about the original conception of the book and kind of how that conception changed over the course of reporting it out? Yeah, it's it's amazing how things changed as you and I started working on this. You you came in very very early in this process and my idea was to write a book about the sad and lonely demise of a disgraced former president as he faded away into obscurity. Um, I'm only slightly exaggerating that, but but that was that was the feel. He had left the White House uh, as as a disgraced president. Uh, his second impeachment trial, you actually had seven members of his own party voting to convict him. Uh, he was a pariah. Uh, you know, Fox News had basically forgotten who he was. You know, you didn't you didn't see him. He was no longer doing interviews on Hannity or or you know Fox and Friends. They had kind of clearly moved on. He was certainly discussed elsewhere, but it was mostly the impeachment trial or uh, then a look ahead to the January 6th hearings. But there was really no sense that this was somebody who would make a, a political comeback. And the original, I mean, kind of a working title I had worked with, I don't know if it was, uh, if it would ever have truly made it into final form was The Biggest Loser. Um, you know, a play off his reality TV, uh, you know, DNA. And the idea is, you know, how could you call him the biggest loser? He, you know, he beat Hillary Clinton. He won a race. He won maybe the, as, as I have said, uh, the biggest upset in the history of American politics in 2016. Um, he presided over, uh, four years, I've all three years before we get to the pandemic of, of peace and prosperity, uh, you know, low unemployment, low inflation, relative peace around the world. How could you call this guy the biggest loser? Um, but the idea was to be the biggest loser, you have to have a hell of a lot to lose. Uh, but as I was um, working on the book, something strange happened. Uh, he reasserted his dominance over the Republican Party. Yes, he did. Um, and it, it really started to kind of uh, happen around these uh these indictments that that we'll touch on uh, a little bit later in this interview and and we kind of have some some very interesting reporting on in the book your your first two books were obviously about trump's presidency his time at the white house this one touches on a little bit of the the end uh some of the things that were going on post-election before before he left office uh but it's primarily about what he's been up to since uh at mar-a-lago at bedminster how did that affect kind of your reporting process? Obviously, you couldn't go and find everybody in Trump world at the White House every day or at the Trump Hotel down the street. They've kind of scattered across the country. And and Trump himself is, is not as accessible uh, to, to get interviews or to um, to talk to. So kind of how did your reporting process of of this book differ from from the other two? Well, first, uh, I should say, I think that the three books. And I have no idea if I'll actually have the desire to to do a fourth. God help me. Um, but but the three books are in dialogue with each other. I think that this one builds on things that I wrote about and reported on and discussed um, in uh, in books one and two. 
In fact, as as you know, um, in one of the real pivotal chapters in the book about the um, the launch of the campaign and the and the and the theme of retribution uh, that became the animating uh, focus of of the campaign, I talk about a book that I wrote. Uh, almost 30 years ago, uh, when I was a young reporter for the New York Post, uh, called America's uh, uh, called uh, the Right to Bear Arms: uh, The Rise of America's New Militias, which was about the militia movement in America that came out of Waco um, and and the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, and just so, to interject there, real quick, Trump makes a cameo in, yeah, in that Trump, book as well. Yeah, there 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 are so so when I when I wrote the the first book uh trump was still in the white house i was a white house reporter for abc and my goal was not to write a polemic about how dreadful trump is or anything i mean it wasn't any i was not that was not the purpose at all um i wanted to the way i I remember describing it at the time is i want to write a book that somebody could pick up 50 years from now uh to answer the question what was it like you know, what was it like to be at the Trump White House, to be at the White House with Donald Trump as the president? And then betrayal obviously has a more of a focus and, um, you know, and, and, and is, uh, is a much more critical look um, and, and gets at Donald Trump's responsibility for what happened on January 6th and not just January 6th, but the entire effort to, to overturn a presidential election. This one you know, again, builds on both. I wanted to really, this is not strictly polemic. This is an effort to try to describe this amazing moment in American history uh, and this incredibly improbable story uh, of a a president going from defeat and disgrace uh, to mounting a a political comeback. Um, He was not cooperative himself. Uh, he didn't want to talk to me for this one. I interviewed him twice for betrayal. But what I found is I could talk to almost everybody around him. Some of those interviews uh, on the record, some of them not. Um, you know, one of the characters that makes uh, that is recurrent appearances throughout this uh, book is Steve Bannon, who uh, I think is one of the most important figures in in Trump world. I think there's nobody that truly gets at what nobody does more to give Trump some kind of a a vision for what he's trying to accomplish than Steve Bannon. For Trump, it's all about, I'm Trump and I'm the greatest and I never lose. But with Bannon, there's that message, that darker side. Um, And I had hours and hours and hours of conversations uh, with him and you know much of it on the record and very revealing and very candid but but it's not just him i spoke to people who you know in in mar-a-lago i spoke to people in his political universe um all of the people that i dealt with in the white house were gone i mean one one of the one of the opening scenes in this book is i went down to mar-a-lago in november of 2022 it was november 15th uh it was the day he announced he was running for president for a third time and the scene is is really, I mean, it's an incredible scene because there's nobody there uh, that helped him win the White House the first or second time. None of the campaign managers are there, none of the significant figures 
uh, uh, from the campaign are there. There's no Kellyanne Conway. There's no Brad Parscale. Um, there's no Steve Bannon. Uh, there's there's not even you know Steve Miller. I mean, family you, members. I mean, Jared showed up, uh, but it was very clear he was not going to be part of the campaign. He was there, I guess, you know, to show that somebody bothered to show up. But Ivanka put out a statement explaining why not only was she not there for the announcement, but that she would have nothing to do uh, with his campaign. Uh, you know, Don Jr. Uh, had some travel problems, even though he had been there two days earlier. They 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 did not show up, and then there wasn't a single confirmed member of his cabinet that was there. Uh, none of his former press secretaries were there, and he had four of them. None of his former uh, chiefs of staff, and he had four of them bothered to show up. Um, you know, he had he had you know some of the kind of the, the, the kind of D list uh, figures from Trump world, people like Sebastian Gorka. Uh, you know, who barely lasted a few months in the Trump White House, and nobody can really quite figure out what he did while he was there. You know, uh, you had Roger Stone show up, best known for getting both a, a conviction and a pardon. But, you know, uh, the, 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 none of the key figures from either the Trump presidency or the Trump campaigns bothered to show up again because it had a feeling like it was, you know, it, there, there was the stench of a loser uh, around him and people didn't want to be a part of it again. That's right. It, I mean, coming on the heels of of last year's midterms, uh, when obviously all the Trump aligned candidates dramatically uh, underperformed, I should say most, not every single one, but uh, really cost the the Republican Party their their red tsunami, their their red wave, uh, and their chance to control the Senate. DeSantis at that point was really um, kind of coming into his own. He won a huge reelection victory in Florida. And it seemed like at that point that that there was a, a changing of the guard of of some kind, and and part of the reason why he was Trump was announcing his his campaign when he was was to try and steal some of that momentum back. And, I mean, I mean, in fact, because DeSantis had just won that huge uh, right. re-election victory uh, in Florida, and there was a poll. So, so the the announcement was November fifteenth, twenty twenty two. I just looked back at, at this uh, recently. There was a poll, a Wall Street Journal poll in the middle of December. So about a month later, and it showed Trump at 36 or 38 percent, DeSantis over 50. I mean, DeSantis, and again, he hadn't announced he was running yet. DeSantis hadn't. But I mean, it looked like Trump could lose to his, you know, former uh, little minion, uh, you know, uh, DeSantis. Um, so it, it, it looked pretty grim and I'm sure, I mean, we'll get at, I think there's a reason it turned around. I think there, I think there are, are several reasons, but there's, there's a couple of very big ones why it turned around. Um, but you were asking me about the, the, the process. And, and one thing I should say, cause I don't, I don't know that people really quite get this, um, because Trump can be absolutely vicious in his attacks on, on journalists. And he's been very vicious in his attacks on me. Uh, personally, I've known him since 1994, and I've genuine uh, for many, many years. I had a very good relationship with Trump, including in the Trump White House. They would complain about my reporting, but you know, Trump would always refer to me as somebody who you know used to treat him really fair. Be nice, John. Be nice. He used to be a fair reporter, um, but it was kind of in it was somewhat good natured, as good natured as he could be, talking about the enemy of the people. But um, I, I say. I've never had a hard time getting some of those people that you will see the most, you know, vilifying the press, vilifying me 
uh, to sit down and talk to me and talk to me quite candidly about what's actually going on. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an astounding thing. And part of it is because there are so many warring factions uh, within Trump world, uh, even now, but especially during the, uh, the White House era that, you know, people want to talk to you so they can basically dish on the other people that are close to Trump. Yeah, I, I, I do want to ask you about that. I, I heard a lot of these conversations between you and Steve Bannon. Uh, you were you were very generous in, in, in sharing those. Um, but, you know, it, 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 it's, it's not quite some... Tuesdays with Maury, but, you know, it's like uh... it's just as revealing, just as uh, just as enlightening. But, you know, it he doesn't seem like he's talking to you begrudgingly. He doesn't no. seem like, you know, he, he's at times even excited to, to be on the phone with you and to fill you in on what's been happening either at Mar-a-Lago or, or on the Hill or, or what have you, what, what is his, uh, what do you think is his rationale for being so open throughout this entire process? It, we kind of, because we've been reporting this over a year, you kind of can see he wasn't thrilled with, with Trump and the direction of the campaign in the fall, uh, of, of 2022. And that's kind of adjusted over the, over the course of the year. But why, was he kind of trying to coach Trump through the media or, or get his bigger message out there? Why do you think that he was so willing to talk to you? You remember there was a, and I don't have the, I don't have the quote in front of me, but uh, shortly after that announcement speech, Bannon was really down on Trump and he, and he told me about it. And, you know, cause that, that speech, that, that announcement speech really said nothing. I mean, Jason Miller, Trump's one of his spokesmen, um, advisors, uh, was very proud that he got Trump to not dwell on the 2020 election because, of course, it was it was all the talk of you know the 2020 election and stop the steal and all that 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 had been uh, the, the, the the view the widely held view I think the correct view hurt Republicans in the 2022 midterm. So this announcement was a week later, and you know Jason and others convinced Trump don't get out there and talk about 2020. You know, it's it's not good. So he didn't. So it was teleprompter Trump for the most part. And, you know, he talked through a litany of warmed over policy proposals that he doesn't really give a crap about. Um, he, you know, told a few old stories uh, uh, from the White House and he announced he was running for president. And, and one of the things he said is we're going to uh, drain the swamp. And Bannon, I remember telling me um, just days later. Don't give me drain the swamp. You had a chance to drain the swamp. You filled the swamp. This is Bannon talking to me. And, I, you know, so why does he do it? I mean, I, I, I don't, the honest answer is I don't know for sure. I, I think that, I think that Bannon sees himself as, uh, you know, as something of an historic figure who helped usher this massive change in. it's a revolutionary change and it's upended one of our major parties and that it has uh, the, the Republican party. And, um, you know, he thinks that, uh, you know, and, and I think rightly so that he's the one that's given as insofar as there is an ideology behind this movement, it comes from Bannon and he wants to make sure that comes through, uh, crystal clear. And it's not just, you know, about Trump and his ego, uh, right. that there's a larger, uh, world historic agenda going on here. That's the, kind of Bannon's view of the world. And of course, Bannon's in the middle of that. I remember 
early in Trump's presidency that got Bannon into some trouble when you know yeah. he was on the cover of Time magazine and there was an SNL skit about how he's the one really running the show and Trump was at some toy president's desk. Yep. Um, and they kind of had a, a falling out. Uh, a huge over, falling out. It was brutal. The, Sloppy uh, Steve. I know. Uh, but the, it seems like they're they're back together again. He was at Mar-a-Lago for extended periods of time earlier this year. You you talk about all the people who weren't at his Trump's launch in, in November of 2022. I think were he doing it again today, he might have a bigger crowd yes. because oh. pe- because people oh, absolutely uh, see the writing on the wall here a little bit. But it's not going to be the A team uh, staffing his administration if he is uh, the nominee and and wins the general election next year. It's not probably not going to be the B team or, or the C team. So uh, who who is he surrounding himself with right now? What does his kitchen cabinet look look like? And and kind of what what would you expect to see different in a Trump administration 2.0? I mean, he spends so much time now with his lawyers. Um, and, you know, Todd Blanche, who's kind of the, 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 the lead lawyer, is somebody who had no prior, you know, ties to Trump whatsoever. He, you know, he's a former prosecutor, federal prosecutor. He's a pretty good lawyer. I mean, he's a good lawyer. And, and, and look, um, you know, Good defense counsel is important, and for, and and Trump, there's there's a there's a great footnote in the book, which I think you kind of helped um, help me pull together, which is you know a list just off the top of our heads of <laughs> of of all the lawyers who have worked for Trump uh, since he came to the White House, not not the government lawyers, not people like Pat Cipollone or Ty Cobb, but like the the outside lawyers, and it's it takes up like a quarter of a page in the book. It's just this list in very small print as a footnote of, of the names. And, you know, Blanche is one of the, is one of the serious people that's on the legal team. Um, but he's, you know, he, he just by, by necessity, um, the political strategy and the legal strategy. And, and again, we can get to this later, but Trump is not particularly strategic about anything, but, but, it, but insofar as there's a strategy, they've merged together and he is spending more time uh, with his legal team and, you know, Boris Epstein is a very key figure, another person who only lasted in the Trump White House for a matter of months um, and, you know, was not taken particularly seriously by the people that staffed that West Wing. I mean, now he is, you know, right there by Trump's side and he's not he's not arguing in court for Trump. He's not really Trump's lawyer, but he and he's a lawyer. He went to Georgetown. Uh, but Boris is basically, you know. Um, tries to, you know, bring together all, all the, all the legal, all, everything legal for Trump and in a way that really annoys some of the lawyers. Blanche is kind of interesting, Todd Blanche, because Todd Blanche also represents Boris because Boris has his own uh, issues, of course. Um, so it's highly complicated. He has a pretty, um, he's got a smaller political staff than he had in certainly in 2020 when it was a really big political team. But, but even, even as the race got underway in, in 2016, you know, Susie Wiles is the most important figure. She was, you know, involved in 2020. Um, she's, you know, she's a, she's a real political operative. Uh, Chris LaCivita, uh, who is somebody that I've known since even before he, his claim to fame, uh, had been swift boat veterans for truth. If you remember, I think you were, uh, 
maybe um, nine years old, nine years old. I'm sure you were following this intimately, uh, you know, it, which managed to portray uh, Silver Star winner John Kerry, Vietnam veteran as a. <laughs> So it's a coward um, and uh, and maybe a traitor. And uh, and, you know, I mean, it was a, quite a it was quite an amazing feat. But he's kind of always been a master of the dark arts. But he's, again, somebody who had no ties to Trump before he was brought into this campaign. Um, but he's he's a pretty shrewd operator. Um, so so he has he has some serious political people um, who I think maybe have more freedom than the political people did in 2016 or 2020, largely because uh, Trump is so tied up in the, in the legal cases. I want to um, put on my, my hard hitting journalism hat for a second. And uh, there, there are some anecdotes or, or uh, stories about those legal teams, kind of the, the squabbles yeah. um, within them. And, you know, I think one that was was published in the Atlantic last week uh, about Trump yelling at one of his lawyers, I think Todd Blanche, who you just yeah. mentioned about um, how he's going to lose him the case or whatever. There's I think a, there's he called a, him you little, f but yes, you know th there are a lot of these stories that are are very personal, very uh, private, and and you were able to report them out, get access to them. But you know, as you as you mentioned earlier, Trump and some of his people iced you out. You're not necessarily able to bring it to them, say, Hey, I heard this. Uh, did this really happen? Is this true? How do you, what is your process for deciding when a source talks to you and, and gives you a story about Trump or something that he did or said, or, or believes, uh, how do you decide what's true and, and what's false? It can be very tricky, especially, you know, cause the traditional methods often don't work. Um, I mean, not not for this book, but there was a story that we we had done for ABC a while back where uh, we went to the Trump team. It was a good, you know, it was a pretty significant uh, uh, exclusive report. We went to them uh, for um, you know to get reaction and check a few things, and they responded by responding before the story was posted, which is a breach. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's so you can't always you, you have to be careful how much you can you can trust them in writing betrayal uh i had two interviews with trump that were one was quite lengthy at mar-a-lago another one was was fairly lengthy it was over the phone and it was right before the book went to press where i went through you know like the dozen or so you know most explosive things and there were a lot of explosive details in betrayal to get trump's response um and i couldn't do that this time because he refused to talk to me and for a while, um, his people weren't, you know, his official kind of spokespeople were not responsive either. Um, I think they're a little more responsive uh, now because uh, they know that being non-responsive doesn't really help them either. Uh, but, you know, it's it's the same. It's, it's journalism. You just have to kind of um, know what your sources, who your sources are, try to get a sense for who you can test, can trust, and to do everything you can to verify. And there were things that I chased down very aggressively that I believed were likely to be true that I did not put in this book because I couldn't get them over. You know, my level of comfort is, am I really satisfied that this is, is solid? There are some pretty great details that uh, maybe, maybe one day you'll yeah, be yeah, able yeah, to confirm yeah, them yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. and get them back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it 
a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turned into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You know, with, with, with a lot of these political books, um, I think you've gotten plenty of it. Maggie Haberman at the New York Times has gotten plenty of it. Bob Woodward, the, the criticism of you save, you're saving this for the book. You're not reporting it out in real time when, you know, we can, there's the power to do something about it. Can you, I think that's a pretty <laughs> unfair criticism. Can you explain it's the uh, dumbest. It's one of the dumbest <laughs> things that I've ever heard said about my work. Oh, how dare you? You held this for your book. You're just trying to cash in. Why didn't you tell us? I mean, you know, writing a book is a different process than doing a story, uh, uh, you know, for the dispatch or doing something on ABC news or writing an article for whatever. I mean, writing a book is an in-depth process. You talk to people, uh, you, um, in, in some cases you get people who are willing to have really in-depth conversations with you because you are writing a book. Motivations can vary, but often the motivation is to get the historic record straight and people that don't want to be engaged in the, um, you know, the back and forth of the daily news cycle, but do want to have, uh, for, for history, a sense of, of, of what really happened. So, you know, when people say that, it's like, no. I didn't hold it for the book. I got the information because I wrote the book. I mean, it's, 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 it's right. entirely. Now, there are some, I think the reason why this generally very stupid criticism, sorry to be blunt, is out there is, is there have been some issues which had a, you know, kind of a little bit of a, of, of a point. One was Bob Woodward when Woodward revealed uh, that Trump had told him uh, you know, that the cor- 
coronavirus, this stuff is, is, is deadly. It's, you know, far worse than the flu. Um, you know, this is, this is really, really, really bad. And then Trump would go out and tell the world it's just like the flu and it's no big deal. But meanwhile, Bob Woodward was having conversations for his book to be published much later where Trump was confiding in him and saying something entirely different. Now, Woodward did eventually release those audio clips, um, as I recall, even in advance of his book and before the presidential election, because he thought this was information that people should have. So, you know, again, whatever. I mean, it's and, and then I had a I had a circumstance that as I was writing Betrayal where I had worked very hard to convince uh, Bill Barr to talk to me. It took me it took me a couple of months of like browbeating you know, of him to talk to me. He finally agreed to give me an interview and it was on background. And then I went back and I was like, you know, what you are saying is incredibly meaningful, but it's only meaningful if your name is attached to it. This was the interview that he gave where he first, you know, beyond what he said in December of 2020, he really went chapter and verse into how there, uh, not only was there no major fraud in the 2020 election, but he had investigated all of these major um, allegations that had come from Trump. And he went on the record and told me the whole story. And that was for betrayal. That was for a book, but the book wasn't coming out maybe for another six months. And I decided I wanted to get out immediately. So I wrote, I wrote an article for the Atlantic and I, and I, and I put it out basically what would become that chapter in betrayal. But look, I mean, writing a book. And also I love the cash in by writing a book. I mean, I don't know how much people know about the publishing world. I mean, if you get a huge bestseller, yes, you can make money in publishing. But I mean, that's not the motivation. I mean, I wrote these books because I wanted to do something that would stand the test of time and get beyond the crazy, ridiculously rapid news cycle or we forget, you know, the massively insane thing that happened five minutes ago because something even more insane happened, you know, five minutes hence. So I, I think these, these, as I said before, these are the most, this is the most important work I have done and uh, information that I got that really broke ground in betrayal and in this book uh, happened because I, I took the time and somehow convinced you to come in and work with me on this as well and did some, you know, in-depth reporting and, and, and research that, that I hope ultimately will stand the test of time. I do think that that's uh, something that I hope people get as they're, as they're reading this book. And again, not, not an impartial uh, observer, but I do think, you know, there, I think your first two books probably had, and we've talked about this, had more newsy nuggets and, and kind of fun stories, anecdotes. But I think it's really important to get this story out there, frame it in the way that, that we did and, and kind of capture what these last two or three years of, uh, Trump's post-presidency have been like. And I, and I think kind of turning back more to the substance of the book, that one of the overarching themes and, and, um, you know, something that we really tried to get across is that Donald Trump today is not the same Donald Trump that most people probably remember from 2020 or early 2021. Um, you know, how, He's been in in hibernation almost uh, for for a couple of years now. You know he he's doing events, but you almost have to seek it out rather than have it kind of come to you or forced on you like like it was for five or six years there. So when people start to tune back in, uh, the media starts to tune back in as the race heats up. What do you think is going to 
surprise people the most about Trump today versus Trump in 2020? I think that that it's he's become divorced from reality. Uh, this is that was always there to a degree. I mean, you were almost paraphrasing Ron DeSantis there at the uh, the last debate when he said he's not the same guy I ran in 2016. But but there's some real truth to it. I mean, one of the things that I found truly uh, shocking. Um, and you know, the, the kind of cliche about Trump was a lot of shocking, not much surprising, but this actually surprised me was the degree to which he bought into one of the craziest of all the conspiracy theories. Um, uh, that this idea, and it was really a, something that started with QAnon that, that, that Trump would be reinstated as president. Um, that, that there was this whole, that the dominoes were all going to come down and the Supreme Court was suddenly going to jump in and say, you know what, that 2020 election, uh, you know, is no good. Biden, get out of the White House. Donald, please get back in there as quickly as you can. I mean, it's insane. Um, Mike Lindell was saying this stuff publicly, doing it. I think one of the first places he did it was on Steve Bannon's podcast. And even Bannon was like, oh, no, 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 what are we doing here? <laughs> But what I discovered is that he is that Trump was obsessed with it and was talking with everybody about it. And um, I went back to the interview that I did with him in this in July of 2021 when I was wrapping up the last book. And right before I did that interview, he'd issued a press release that ended with the lines 2024 or before. And you know, people didn't really pay much attention. That's weird. You know, he doesn't really think, oh, nah, I couldn't. So I, I asked him about it only because he was sounding like he was, he's like, you're not going to believe the stuff that's coming out. That's the way the interview starts before I can get my first question. You're not going to believe the stuff that's coming out about, you're going to see, you're going to see, you won't report it, but you're going to see, you know, in Arizona, in Wisconsin and Michigan, and you're going to see all the stuff that's coming out. And, um, but he was truly trying to encourage this movement to try to upend a presidential election and evict a, a guy that had been in the white house. I mean, this went on until early 2022. Yeah. It's uh, and I don't think people are aware that I, I mean, how could a guy like think that? Right. It, you, you would know if like me uh, for your job, you had to read truth social every day for, uh, six or eight months. Um, that my my wife has noted that my by mood... the way, that, by the way, you'll 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 <laughs> you've been permanently damaged by that experience. So it's I, uh, it's tough to come back from. But yeah. I, I mean, it it truly is like the the shock factor is gone. He 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 says some of the most outlandish things that if if he had tweeted them in in 2017 would be the main story. Uh, well, that's for, the thing, right? Because he was off Twitter. And he was off Fox News and he had no, he, he couldn't walk into the White House briefing room and have the right. cameras all around him. Nobody was actually paying attention to him. Um, you know, he was in the news, but again, it was because of the investigations. Right. Um, but you didn't really have a window into what Donald Trump was actually thinking and saying and, 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 right. and, and believing. Right. And, and he, that's, that helped fuel uh, his comeback. People didn't get that look that you and I had, you know, deep into the soul of what this guy was up to. And, and you know, there, there, there's a couple things in the book where we talk about 
you know, he's down in Mar-a-Lago. Weddings are happening. Members are having weddings or different events. And Trump shows up to, you know, you know, greet the bride and groom or whatever. And, and he starts speaking. And, and some of the little clips come out because people shoot it on their iPhone. And, and for a while, that was maybe the best insight into what he was thinking and doing. And there's some crazy stuff out there in YouTube land. But again, not many people were actually seeing that stuff. Right. These, I, I encourage anybody listening to this to go seek out those clips. It's like a, a wedding band or a wedding DJ. And there are probably three or four of these. It's not an isolated incident. Yep. He's doing this weekend in, weekend out. And it's just a bassist and a, and a singer just standing there waiting, waiting just and waiting and waiting for him to stop talking about the domino theory of once Arizona's audit comes in the way that it's expected to, then surely Michigan's state legislature will, will decide. And that, Vermont's doing yes, stuff. Vermont, like Vermont, what? The, I mean, I mean, some of it's just, it, it's not, it's not even, it's completely divorced from any sense of reality. Yes. I mean, he's, he's down there. This is the former president of the United States. He could be, uh, you know, whatever Obama has been doing, uh, Spotify contracts and, right. uh, and Netflix documentary series and going to all these events. He's in Mar-a-Lago watching OAN broadcast the live stream closed circuit television of uh cyber the, ninjas. the cyber ninjas audit and he's he goes to arizona later in the year to give a speech i think at a turning point usa conference and he's shouting out individual state house members of arizona who he recognizes from tv and he says i've, I've seen you all summer <laughs> things like that he knows these people uh that's what he's spending his time doing um and so it'll be interesting to see as he kind of gets thrust back into the, the, the limelight here, is he able to pivot or, or is the stump speech and his, you know, the legal case is going to be what consume him. I mean, if you look at what he's done just over the past month and a half, um, he has been in court more days than he has done political rallies. So since October 2nd, my count is he spent eight might be nine days now, actually, eight or nine days in court. And this is just on the, the, the New York Attorney General civil case against his company. And he wasn't required to be in court except for one of those days, which is when he testified. Um, so, you know, he's, he, he's still not like out there in the way you, 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 would, you would get a, you know, a political candidate. I mean, the number of rallies are, are really few and far between. And the number of actual interviews are, are actually few and far between. So we're not, I mean, that's one reason why I, I feel that this book is by far the most important thing I have done, uh, even more most important of the three, uh, um, is because I think that it is essential as we get into this election year that people actually see who Donald Trump is right now. He's the most ubiquitous guy on the planet, but... I, I, I think that as you, I think the poll numbers you see, and especially these hypothetical general election matchup, which doesn't seem so hypothetical anymore, uh, you know, Biden versus Trump, it's like people have this notion of, oh, yeah, you know, that, well, he was president and again, prices inflation were lower down, and, yeah. and the Middle East wasn't in flames and that's all fine. It's like, okay, fine. But before you go and vote, look at, right. look at what he actually stands for now. This is uh, this is the focus of the the first chapter of the book that that was um, published by the Atlantic earlier this month, um, and 
I think I think this is one of my favorite details in the entire in the entire thing. Um, it's about a speech that Trump gave at CPAC uh, back in the spring. I was there. Uh, I think you might have left by then. Lucky yeah. you. Uh, yeah. I, I was still sticking around. Um, and it's it, it's a very weird dichotomy where if you read the transcript of the speech that he gave, it's one of the darkest and most cynical and, and really sinister uh, sounding things that, that you've ever seen in American politics, the way he delivered it in the room, it didn't come off that way. It was lighthearted. It was, uh, you know, jokes interspersed here and there. But if you actually look at the words that he's saying and, and, you know, you talk to Steve Bannon about this after the fact, and he kept using, this one phrase to describe this the speech over and over and over again come retribution uh and and the i just listening to it i found that so odd googled the phrase find out that it's from these uh civil war historians published a book in the 1980s basically making the case that there was a plot by the confederacy to assassinate abraham lincoln and kidnap and kidnap and and or assassinate you know what however things play out and the code word for that operation was come retribution. And and Bannon, we you brought it back to Bannon. He's like, oh yeah. That's great the- book. Have you read the book? It's a great book. <laughs> um, so is is that the animating focus of Trump 2024? Is it retribution and revenge? That was the rebirth of the Trump campaign. So that's in the spring. Um and you had the you had the aborted launch in November. You had DeSantis um, beating him in 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 several polls, not just that Wall Street Journal poll I mentioned from December. There there are polls in early uh, 2023 which show uh, DeSantis in the lead. Um, you know Trump's campaign is you know he's doing things like selling uh, NFTs. Of course, earlier than that, he's he's dining with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes. He's it doesn't look at all like a serious campaign. It certainly doesn't look like a campaign that has a message. But he found the message as the indictments came down the pike. Now that CPAC was before the first indictment, but it was when it was clear the uh, the special counsel had been opponent appointed. It was clear Jack Smith was doing really serious stuff. He wasn't gonna just do it to say never mind. Um there, there was a real sense that he uh, was 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 facing impending legal peril, and Trump's focus became, and I think Bannon was a big part of of encouraging this. Uh, that the memorable line was, you know, in twenty sixteen, I said, "I am your voice," and then he looks to this election, he says, "I am your retribution," and the whole focus is, I am going to get retribution on the people who have wronged you by wronging me. Um, you know, they're, they're coming after me because their real target is you and I stand in the way. And he really talks about in, in, in very graphic terms, rooting out uh, all the embedded enemies within the U S government, that so-called deep state, you know, rooting them out, destroying them, annihilating them. Um, and Bannon, you know, called it the come retribution speech. I think it was, it was the beginning of, 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 of a turn. 
And by the way, when when the Atlantic article ran and Bannon, you know, was facing some blowback because, you know, why are you talking about, um, you know, about Donald Trump and invoking the Confederacy and not just invoking the Confederacy, but invoking the plot to assassinate Abraham Lincoln. So Bannon sent me a note just as soon as the article popped and he hadn't even seen the whole thing yet. He said, I hope you included the predicate. And he put predicate in all caps. Um, and the predicate Bannon explained to me was that Abraham Lincoln had ordered uh, the assassination of Jefferson Davis, the Confederate president, and his full cabinet. So come retribution, the plot to get Lincoln was about, you know, retribution for, for, for that. I was like, okay, well, we could get out. I don't really, I don't really do it all deep dive, but thank you for completely and totally confirming that you were in fact invoking the Confederacy and talking about, um, about, about Donald Trump. But then that's, that's kind of step one. The next major event in, in the, in the Trump campaign was his first actual campaign rally of, of 20 of the 2024 uh, campaign. And of course he chose to do it in Waco, Texas. And this is another case. Very important early primary state. Yes. On I, mean, Republican if, calendar. I mean, if, if you want to win in Iowa and New Hampshire and you want to get a good run up on, on Nevada and South Carolina, you have to really reach out to people in Texas and, and specifically Waco, Texas. Uh, no, it's absurd. I mean, there's, there's no reason to be there. And uh, except for the tremendous symbolic value of the fact that that was where you truly saw federal overreach by the, you know, what would now be called the deep state, the, uh, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, the FBI, federal marshals, and their efforts uh, to arrest David Koresh and his followers in the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas, a siege that ended up um, a total disaster with more than 50 people uh, killed in an inferno and became a rallying cry for people who didn't trust the, the, the U.S. government, who feel that, and, you know, plenty of reasons not to trust the U.S. government, but, but people thought that the U.S. government's out to get us. And, and it, it, this, this led to the militia movement. This inspired Timothy McVeigh, who, uh, you know, uh, two years later goes and, uh, and bombs the Oklahoma City Federal Building. All of that. So when I went to Bannon, I was like, Waco, are you kidding me? What are you, Branch Davidians? He's like, yeah, we're the Trump Davidians. Um, it's explicit. Uh, there, it was meant to show, and remember the context there, Trump gave that first rally not long after the FBI uh, executed the search warrant at Mar-a-Lago. And as we quote in the book, one of the, one of the actual Branch Davidians who's still alive because he wasn't there, uh, for the siege, uh, but but was a member back then, um, said, yeah, it's just like, you know, what they did to Trump at Mar-a-Lago, you know, it's just like what he, what he did to the Branch Davidians. So, it, I mean, it's, it's really, it's really dark and really sinister stuff. Um, and I remember sitting down, and I think you heard this interview too, with, with Bannon at one point. And, you know, there, there were, there were incidents that made you really feel like things could turn violent pretty quickly. Um, there was the, there was the incident in Ohio uh, where um, you know a crazed gunman attacked a, uh, an FBI field office, um, and I asked Bannon, "Aren't you afraid of violence? That this could all turn violent?" 
And his answer to me was, no, because we're going to win. That's, uh, that's ominous. It's, yeah. it's uh, difficult. We're, we're sitting here recording this on Thursday. Uh, the book comes out on Tuesday. The, the Republican junior card debate was last night. And it's, it's jarring, you know, having gone through this process of, of working on this book to see those five candidates on the stage talking about should we frack in the Everglades or only 20 miles outside the Everglades? Or, 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 or should we combine Israel aid with Ukraine aid or should they be separate bills? Right. <laughs> I mean, all of this stuff seems it, they're important issues. They're incredibly yes. important issues. But on, against the backdrop of what we're talking about right now, and that person is quadrupling all of them in the polls, it, it just seems, you know, a little bit quaint uh, to, to be covering that stuff in, in a more traditional way. You and I had kind of an ongoing debate as we were going through, uh, you know, doing the, the research and reporting on, on the book. Um, I, I was pretty explicit that I, I did not think that he would be the Republican nominee again, even, even as he gained strength and started to trounce all his rivals. I still... I word it a little differently now. I think I say I, I I still think that he, I still think he can be beaten. I mean, he's obviously the prohibitive front runner. Um, it's hard to imagine any of those people on that little stage, um, you know, suddenly surging in the polls. Um, but I but I think it's I think it's still possible for the reasons we've discussed. I, I don't think that the polls reflect a deep understanding of uh, of of that dark ominous message that he has now and also more generally the kind of weirdness and divorce in, in the way he's divorced from reality um but i mean that was a that was like a twilight zone debate in another dimension where donald trump almost didn't exist i mean the first question was about trump and even in the answer to the first question there wasn't much engagement and then they were off into not only the issues you mentioned but also kind of petty attacks on one another you know, whether or not Nikki Haley wanted Chinese business, whether, you know what, I mean, it's, it's to, to come to South Carolina when she was governor and whatever lobbying that, that or whatever, you know, I mean, it, look, it was like kind of petty, um, you know, cheap oppo research stuff. Um, and almost no mention of the guy that has a 30 to 40 point lead over all of them. But you know, he, he is incredibly volatile as I think comes through in this book more. So he's always been a mercurial and, you know, I mean that, that Lord knows I covered four years of that white house. I know what it was like. Um, but, uh, you know, there were restraining influences on him often that didn't work very well at restraining him, but there were uh, people around him who, um, would, would, would try to pen him in and try to undermine him. We talk about this in, in, in the book a bit. Um, those people are gone. They are gone. They are not there anymore. And as we actually get into a campaign, let, let, let's see where this, let's see where this goes. That is uh, I think a good place to, to leave it. It's uh, there's a whole lot more that came from in the book. So Jonathan, thank you so much for, uh, joining us on the Dispatch podcast today, and thank you for uh, for bringing me along on on the journey the past yeah, year. It was, it's been uh, <laughs> enlightening. It was uh, fascinating, enlightening, if not always uplifting. Yes. Uh, thank you, Declan. Yes.
Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.